0: We are creating a platform for those who are curious. One that tells the story from the artist's perspective. Moments in time captured from the innovators who are reshaping dance, music, theater, and the visual arts. This is The Working Artist Project. Hey guys, it's Darian Douglas. Welcome to the second season of The Working Artist Project. In fact, if you're back after the first season, welcome home. And if you're not, let me tell you a little bit about this podcast. I sit down with some of the most influential and talented artists from multiple fields, and we discuss the challenges of constructing a successful career as an artist. You will be inspired and motivated after listening to these amazing people conquer challenges and live life on their terms. Welcome to the Working Artist Project. Today, I want to welcome Jason Marshall to the Working Artist Project. Hello. <laughs> yeah, you, you got to get a little closer. Do I? Okay. Yeah, that's good. So, man. I want to start just with you telling me where you're from um, and how you got started and why you chose the baritone saxophone I was born in Washington DC
1: raised in Silver Spring Maryland okay I got started playing music because there was always music in the house there was always a piano my mother sang my folks you know put on a lot of events through an organization that they ran called the National Black Media Coalition, which is a media uh, advocacy group. Oh, cool. So I experienced art and entertainment that way. I mean, I met the Nicholas Brothers. I don't even you know, know who that, that is. The Nicholas Brothers. Yes. Yeah. Two of the greatest dancers that ever did live. Okay. I met Louis Gossett Jr., Quincy Jones um Eartha kit tommy davidson before he was known wow. so so many people so many people uh so to an extent art was always you know black art was always around mm-hmm. and there was there was never a separation between that and daily life
0: and your, your parents they weren't they were musicians or they my were mother
1: or? my mother sings beautifully even now But they were not, strictly speaking, musicians in that way. Although my mother was, you know, when she was younger, she did sing in in groups and so forth. Okay. But that was not, uh, their profession in my lifetime was never music in that way. Mm -hmm. So during the end of third grade, the school system where I went to, went to school and you know matriculated montgomery county school systems there there was a there was always a musical presentation at the end of third grade and you'd see people play instruments and explain what was different about instruments and then okay. during that summer we you, you then had an option to decide you know to, to play an instrument mm-hmm. and i picked the saxophone before okay. that though we all i say we all my brother and sister and i we all took piano lessons so you, you you were going to experience instrumental music at some point in life growing up in my household okay okay but at the end of 3rd grade i picked saxophone and uh alto oh was, so you started you started on a, alto alto was what was available unless you were exceptionally large for a, you know 4th <laughs> grade and then you had tenor but right. i didn't know from alto and tenor i just knew saxophone mm-hmm. and so they took me to uh Washington Music Center in silver spring and 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 they rented me a saxophone oh and that was that's what happened and then the the end of the fourth grade year i you know presented a particular aptitude for it, and so they bought it, and I went to a music camp the summer between fourth and fifth grade, and I was able to get a few things together you know to the extent a fifth grader can okay and uh during that camp, there was a guy named Montrell Smith, and he played baritone, and he was like the star of the camp, you know. So <laughs> um, it's funny because he reached out to me recently. You know, we kept—I mean, we we touch base every few years, you know. Um, but he he reached out and said, "Hey," and, and uh, I don't know if he still plays, but that's where I first started, saw a baritone being played in person. Was at that camp, and then the next year, uh, I played alto. Still, but I you know just that 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 uh, the baritone was something that I still had to, to kind of figure out and so in sixth grade I, I had access to it. I actually got into a fight in sixth grade band. okay and uh, I was kept in for recess because of that fight and during that time where I was not was, I was not allowed to go out there was a baritone in the instrument room. Mm-hmm. And because the infraction was in music class, the detention, so to speak, was in music class, too. And so I started rummaging through the instrument closet and found the baritone, and that's how I got started.
0: Okay, so you're in detention, supposed to be chilling, you looking through instruments. Well, that,
1: that was <laughs> probably the safest thing for me to do at the time. Right, right. But, yeah, my, t- my teacher at the time was a woman named Holly Pasquale. And I'm to 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 look back, I'm eternally grateful for that opportunity because she was always interested in her students truly knowing music and I, I remember when she said she said jason you don't know how to read music and i was supposed to have known it by then right right but i didn't and so she made sure that i got that together
0: mm-hmm. in middle school was she like getting you guys after class or, or something like she that? she had in hindsight i realized she had a gift for recognizing
1: aptitude for music okay so she, whereas other students, she might not have been so forthright about learning how to read and how to play and perform, stand up in front of people. She was very, she was intent that I, that I get those things together. Mm-hmm. So I realize now that she, she saw something that needed uh, a push,
0: and she pushed, and here we are. Okay, cool, man. So you, that was sixth grade? That was sixth grade, you chose the barit, you chose baritone, mm-hmm. and so you you started just playing. You did you take it home, or what was the vibe on I that? I took it home. Yeah, over the summer I okay. took it home, and
1: you know, practiced it to the extent possible, and you know, played along with records. And my right. folks had a fabulous music collection, so okay. it was. I mean, even now, the first time I heard you know baritone in the setting that really appealed to me, it was it was George Benson cookbook. Oh, Ronnie okay. Cuber and Lonnie Smith and Jimmy Lovelace on drums. Some of that was Charlie Persip on drums. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, my parents already had that stuff, and they already had you know all of the hips, all of Earl Clue and just Earth Wind and Fire and the whole
0: thing. Every yeah, yeah. Every, everybody. Yeah, man. So, so so late so later you got to play with Roy Hargrove. Much I mean you skipping all the he, way. He's, he's just... <laughs>
1: Yeah, all the. Way, yeah. I'm
0: assuming that's, that's New York time. That's college, right?
1: Yeah, when I met Roy, I was in undergrad at the New School. I met him at a jam session. Okay. Because you could still meet people at jam sessions right. at that time. <laughs> and uh, I, I saw then that he was responsive to my persistence. I was always out playing okay i would never just hang i'd never show up without my horn i'd never show up and not play so one thing that i recognize about then that i see is perhaps different now is that there is a noticeable lack of persistence Mm. folks only show up when they get to make up all the rules and call all the tunes and yeah when I when I showed up, everyone I knew showed up, and we would make the best out of whatever was there. Right. So whatever the tunes were, whatever the rhythm section was, we would play and make the most out of it. Mm-hmm. And so I met Roy either at Cleopatra's Needle, which is still there in some form or fashion, and, or I met Roy at a place called Niagara, which, at that time was on east 7th and avenue a. I don't know if it's still there. If it's still there, I don't believe they have music, live music in there anymore. Right. Yeah, but, I never heard of that place. But uh those were the places to, and there was there was up over, but that was that was in Brooklyn. So if uh-huh. you didn't go to Brooklyn a lot, then perhaps you wouldn't have have experienced up over. There was a guy named Bob who ran it. He called him Up Over Bob. Okay, and uh, that's where I met Marcus and EJ. That's where I met uh, all Shaw. The cats. That's where I met Walter Smith. That's where I met those that group of folks. Up over was kind of their kind of their scene. LaRon Thomas. That's mm-hmm. what, you know everyone who was like up and coming at at the time I got to town, which is 2003. Okay, uh,
0: that was what was going on at the time. So your first gig with Roy, like, were you, were you prepared? Were no. you unprepared? No, 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 What See, happened?
1: That, um, the first, yeah, the first gig I was not prepared for. I didn't expect it to happen. I saw Roy enough at jam sessions, and we played enough together and had enough conversations where he eventually started saying, oh, we're going to play one day, man, we're going to play. He kept saying that. And He said, give me your number. And... I, you know, I, he'd always say it, and after a while, he'd say, okay, he said, "Okay, easy, saying, right?" Uh, <laughs> and 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 you know, he said it enough times, and then one day, he called me on the phone, and that was in the year two thousand and four. Okay, Roy has not called me on the telephone since then. I, I you know, I ended up working with him for a long time, but that was the f- the first and perhaps only time he himself called me on the phone. Wow. He said, "Hey, man, I got this gig." Uh, at the Hollywood Bowl and I wanna know if you can make it he left he called left message because I didn't hit the phone.
0: That's the the Jazz Festival? Yeah, or, it okay it was it was in, it was, the, in LA it was right the Playboy Jazz Festival. Yeah the
1: Hollywood Bowl. And um he said, Yeah, I got this I got this uh I got this band. Uh we got a new record out and I don't know if you can make it to gigs this weekend. He called me like Thursday, the gig was Saturday. Mm hmm. And uh, um can you, I think it's you know the answer obviously is yes he said okay my manager will call you get the record learn the music I said yes hung up the phone and I (laughs) I didn't realize I didn't know what record he was talking about (laughs) (laughs) Um, because at at that time the only thing that I listened to was baritone saxophone players that I didn't you know I mean I was aware of more or less what everything else was going on but I didn't all I all I listened to was baritone saxophone and rhythm section that was it and so he said he had a record out, and at the time I lived in a place with four other roommates. Okay. And one of them had the record. <laughs> so it's five of y'all in there. There's five of us in there. Damn. And it was, it was a typical New York apartment where you, you open the door, it's just a long hallway with one room at the end right. and a bunch of rooms along the way. Right. And my, my roommate at the time had the record I borrowed the record, transcribed the whole record on the airplane on the way there. One of the skills that I acquired fairly early was transcription. Okay. That has served me very well through the years. So I I got the record, and I didn't even know what on the record he wanted me to know. So I just transcribed everything. Damn. A five-hour plane ride. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I got I, I got a little bit of a head start listening to it, you know, in a day or so. I I, mm-hmm. I had my hands on it before I had to get on the plane, but but you know, my mother sang to me, so my ears were always strong. Right, right. You right. know, my ears were always strong. I'm deaf in one ear now, which is un- totally unrelated to music, and I wear a hearing aid. But the the muscle memory, so to speak, is still there. Mm-hmm. So I could listen to something a few times and without a, without the aid of an instrument, write it down. And so that's what I did with that record. I wrote it oh, down. Damn. Yeah. And this, you know, again, this is one of those skills you don't wear on your sleeve. You just, you have it in there when you need it, you, you deal with it. Right, know. right. Um, so I transcribed the record and I got there. I got to to California, and they you know met everyone in the airport and I remember I got to the airport, and Reggie Washington, the bass player had his hat pulled down over as like, he was asleep on okay. the chair, <laughs> and they were like, "Yeah, that's the bass player." and I'm like, okay then, you know then renee newville and and uh, at the time, it was Keith Anderson mm-hmm. playing saxophone. And, and uh, Jason Thomas on drums, and also Willie Jones. He carried two drummers at the time. Okay. And Todd Parson on guitar. And Roy. And that was that was the band. And that was the beginning of all the big stuff. That was that was the, the first time I had met anyone other than Roy. Maybe maybe I had met. I, maybe I didn't meet went by then, but. Uh, just you know, so the 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 brand names that we all right, of kind course. of are right. familiar with. That was the, that was the, the the beginning of my being on the road and meeting folks in that capacity. You know, the way you meet people on tour at a festival when you see. Of course. You know, um, that was the beginning of that, and so I got I got to meet. Um, I, well, I say meet. I got to see Herbie Hancock. I you know Wayne Shorter. You know, at the time, they was a band with with Herbie and Wayne and Dave Holland and Brian Blade. Oh yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. And that that was that was an interesting experience because I, that was the first time where I realized you could you could watch. You could see something impressive take place without enjoying it, because I <laughs> you know I, I didn't realize that I was I was watching yeah. something that was for all intents and purposes over my head. Right. But after the initial shock of seeing it take place, I I was okay admitting that I didn't particularly care for it musically because I just didn't understand it. Right. And I remember looking, standing there just kind of in awe of, man, it's Herbie Hancock and Wayne Shorter and everybody. And Roy was standing next to me just after the gig. And he's like... Man, you hungry? You having an in and out <laughs> burger? You know what I'm saying? So he, he was as interested as I was in what right. was happening. So that was the beginning of understanding that I could feel okay having a quite independent musical taste. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it was, it, you know, but, but, you know, that gig was the, the beginning of, you know, the spinning stage at Hollywood Bowl and the the notion of having to memorize things that you don't know And having to perform and having to play in front of 10,000 people. But yeah. uh, And I remember Keith Anderson and Roy having push-up competitions. Oh. Because one of the things that I learned along the way is that everyone, whether they had the discipline to stick to it or not, understood that physical fitness was part of musical excellence. Right. Everyone understood that. Not all of them had had it together to really stay that course, but they all knew that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's funny because that was one of the first things Harlan told me when I met him. You know what I mean? He was like, if you're going to be a drummer, you got to be strong. you got to be strong. you <laughs> got to be strong. So, man, what in particular did you learn from being with Roy uh, that you think would be valuable for, for other young musicians coming up? I learned that discipline
1: is not automatic.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that you ha- discipline is a pursuit. Is something that that you you develop and you have to maintain over time. It will not just be there. You mean discipline on your instrument, or, or I mean, when, however you receive it, mm-hmm. discipline. You you can have a musical gift or talent, but without discipline, it's usually wasted at some point. You've witnessed him. Uh, his, his well, what I'm saying is that I have witnessed through my experience with him the right and the wrong way to do just about everything okay and you know he he was always very very uh very plain emotionally which is to say he he he, he was not but completely open you know on, on an emotional level so that very often manifested in some uh occasionally unfortunate ways, mm-hmm. but you know he was he was and I believe is fully committed to the music. It's just that dis the discipline that it takes to to do this uh, long term and and uh be better for that commitment was as with a lot of folks occasionally lost on him, you know. You you cannot love music so well, so much that uh you don't have to take care of anything else. Oh, right, right, right. That is not unique to Roy. I found that with with most of the po- folks I worked with. Yeah. Um and I don't know what it is about me that uh you know, put me in those situations, but I was I was and am blessed to have learned from people like that, all along the way, who were happy to teach me, but also could not help but show me the right and wrong way to do things. I hear you. Roy's music blossomed completely, in my estimation. Um, so it's it's um, it 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 was it was a blessing to to have been around at that time to watch it. Right. happened. I mean, now I understand the expressions on the faces of people who got to play with Freddie Hubbard in a certain time. Now right. I understand why they would talk to me about Freddie in the way they did. Um, because now when people talk to me about Roy, I find myself making some of the same faces as people right. who talked to Freddie. Talked about Freddie. Mm-hmm. I, I am not uh, in a position to tell you how roy will proceed or how he's doing i know i'm playing with him coming up i haven't seen him in years but um i know i'm happy to be a part of whatever's down the road you know right um but yeah i mean the the thing about roy is that he he was always committed to the music and that's that's rare now people are even even really good musicians are are completely distracted by all these other things going on Mm -hmm. and roy was always about
0: music. Oh. Man, I want to ask you about the the current uh the most recent uh police shootings. Mm. And how they affect you and how they affect the music and the people around you. That's what they were put there
1: to do. So, now we're equipped such that we can film them doing that. But that's what they were sent there to do. Mm. So, it's unfortunate that they were sent there for those purposes, but that's what they were sent to do. Not, it's not good, but again, that is expressly what they were put there to do. Police exist to uh, act as the military wing and the, uh, or I should say, the the defense arm of a particular demographic, and they and they're there to do that. Mm-hmm. So it's it's, you know, as they say, it's not. It's not them but those who sent them they're there doing
0: what they trained and paid to do yeah and so how does that that whole thing affect uh the music at least the music that you're creating in the interest of
1: homeostasis
0: mm-hmm.
1: while i do have a responsibility to Uh Register what's happening Uh, I don't have quite the I don't register quite the obligation to allow it to Affect my production in a in a particularly obvious way There are times when Yes, there is an obvious reaction to an obvious transgression but i don't feel that i have to react in such a common way as i see so many artists doing and very often i find artists can only react as their skill set will allow right so that's why growing that skill set is important to me because it allows you options uh, artistically in terms of how you react We we cannot help but be directly affected by what's going on now and but the reality is it's always going on the Only difference is our ability to document it, right? That's it and yeah. and 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 our Awareness of how unaffected so many people are by what what's been documented and again, that's not new None of what is happening now is new. All that's new is uh phones with cameras and social media. <laughs> right. That's it. Right. That's the only thing that's new. What what has come to light is that nothing has changed. Exactly. That that <laughs> is that perhaps is, is different. That is that is what is uh that is what is perhaps the new thing to contend with that nothing is different so as 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 we look at you know eyes on the prize and as we look at all these different civil rights documentaries and we watch movies like rosewood and you know things are exactly as they have been
0: yeah that's the scariest part about america america has remained stagnant in this very particular area and uh it, you know it seems to be no end in in that in, the, in well, that well you know again
1: america as it if i'm understanding what you mean by that is it's still exactly what it was designed to do so the the notion of progress is i think one of the new things that people have to figure out how to divest it's not designed to progress it's designed to stay in this holding pattern where one group of people are fine. This is part of why it's 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 uh it's hard to get other folks to recognize a problem because it's not a problem for everyone. Mm. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It's a problem now that the folks who experience the problem can show you, "Hey, we have a problem." But the problems are not new, and they happen with such regularity. It's easy to see now that it they've been engineered to do just what they're doing. So. Mm-hmm. Um, I found peace in the reality that this is, uh, a moment in time, in, in, in our, I say our, I mean, humanity is roughly 200,000 years. This is a blip. This is a, this is a less than a thousand year hiccup in the natural order of things. Right. So. Yes, it's unfortunate it's painfully unfortunate, but um it has happened and it is, it is happening on purpose um, and that's why that's why I don't speak about police brutality and and uh, militarization of police uh, it, it all all those terms presuppose that they weren't sent here to do this anyway right and they were so that's why. That's why this notion of uh, well, there's got to be justice and how can you see this and there's no conviction. You can't convict people for doing their job. <laughs> Damn, it's <laughs> <That's> their job. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, you can't. It doesn't doesn't work like that. You know, it just it doesn't work like that. And so yes, uh, uh, it is. It is, from my perspective, inhumane. But. Uh, Inhumane treatment is necessarily part of the program.
0: Mm-hmm. Let me switch gears. Okay, back to uh, you know this music thing, mm-hmm. and and just thinking about, I, I think the most daunting thing about moving to New York, you know, at least for me, and and I'm sure for people who don't live here who want to move here to be an artist, is trying to figure out how to make a living. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And you've seemed to figure that out and do you know like how did you do that And like and what advice would you have for someone uh who wants to follow in your footsteps first of all if you need for it to happen in a certain time
1: span you shouldn't do it first of all if 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 you're the type of person that says okay i'm going to show up and i'm going to give new york four years then don't come got you don't because it just doesn't work like that even if it works exactly as 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 you plan it in those four years There's the day after those four years, which can go drastically (laughs) different than the first four years. Right. And, um, you know, New York has a way of, uh, making it so no amount of money will get you excited. You know, New York has, has a way of making you live just beyond any amount of means. Right. You know, if your next gig pays $3 million in a year, you're going to be trying to figure out what to do for money. Right. That's real. Okay. <laughs> that's real. I don't care how nice the gig is. I don't care what you know. That's why people who do nice gigs still work. Yeah, because New York has a way of 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 conditioning you to expand your living to just beyond what your means are. But if you're so busy living the life, you'll never know that. Then you mm. look up, and you don't have anything, you can't do anything, and you're stuck. And so you got to leave, or you got to die. Most people. <laughs> I'm
0: saying. Okay.
1: I've seen it. I'm telling you what I've yeah what I've seen. Um. I know a lot of people who just say, "Well, I can't continue my lifestyle here in New York, so I got to leave New York so I can continue my lifestyle." And I understand that. Mm-hmm. You know, New York requires way more discipline than anyone wants to admit. To be here for the you know long term. Right. Most people get caught up in what they think you know, based on, you know, you know, they watched more Better Blues, or, you know, they, they right, think right, that's they, the life. And well, that's.
0: I was a victim of that. Okay. you coming but, from Mississippi. But again, you know?
1: that, if you're from <laughs> Mississippi or if you're from Portland or if you're from right. wherever you're from, right? that's what you see. That's, you think that's how it goes. Yeah. And then you get here and you realize it's a whole other thing. Right, right. But um, I f- I found that if I could live... With a degree of discipline that allowed for a, you know, allowed for a, a degree of wellness. And this is not to say living high, but I always, I always tried to take care of myself. I didn't find any rhythm with that until the last maybe five years, but I, I, I wanted to live well. I didn't always know what that meant, but I, I wanted to live well. Right. So everything would always come back to, you know, that and, and just being able to be well. You know, I see, I see a lot of folks doing a, a lot of nice gigs. They were always sick, always drunk, always hungover, always and always, mm-hmm homeless always um you know uh owing people money always hungry always you know somehow beset by a condition and so again i was fortunate that i got to work with folks who showed me exactly how and how not to live you know i've seen i've seen so much that sometimes it it's even startling to remember how much I've seen because I was the, I was the fly on the wall for a whole lot of stuff. Right. I was the fly on the wall. <laughs> I was the fly on the wall. When I saw Benny Golson and Johnny Griffin looking at each other when they looked at another famous saxophone player like yeah, he don't get it. <laughs> I was there for that right but that's because I wasn't at the bar you understand what I'm saying that's because mm-hmm. I wasn't outside smoking a cigarette with someone else who I wanted to be friends with who was famous at the time right you see Ben Olsen and Johnny Griffin were inside
0: playing saxophone so I was gonna be right there